This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's word. We've been looking at 1 Thessalonians, and uh, today and next Sunday we are bringing our time in 1 Thessalonians to a close. I'll probably take up 2 Thessalonians sometime in the new year. But here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, this letter finishes with closing exhortations, and that's the pattern of Paul. Paul tells you what God has done for you in Christ, through Christ, and then he tells you what we do in response. And so these closing exhortations, all these one-liners, they're not afterthoughts. They're not, oh, yes, uh, I've got to uh, put this in there. I've got to make sure they get this. It's all part of a response that we make to God because of Jesus. In fact, as you look at these one-liners, and we're taking them in segments Sunday after Sunday, but hopefully if you, if you go home and read First Thessalonians in its entirety, for instance... You see that uh, the one-liners here and in other places in New Testament epistles, they look like Jesus personally. That is to say that uh, Jesus himself went before us these ways. He was someone who rejoiced always. He was someone who prayed without ceasing. He was someone who gave thanks in all circumstances. He faced some difficult things. And so he has gone before us, and this is uh, familiar New Testament instruction, if there's such a thing as common New Testament instruction, you've heard this before, haven't you? I mean, these are the most well-known verses in 1 Thessalonians 5. We've all heard rejoice always. We've certainly all heard pray without ceasing or pray continually as it's also also translated. We've, We've all heard give thanks in all circumstances. Here is common New Testament instruction. It's not just here. It's in other places throughout the New Testament. It's not just from Paul. Uh, Peter says similar, James uh, and Jesus himself. By the way, this is um, actually the second time in uh, this letter we've been told directly what God's will is. Notice that verse 18 ends, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Meaning those who relate to God through Jesus, this is what you're interested in already because of what he's done for us. But that mention of the will of God there in verse 18, look back in chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So here's the second mention now in 518 of the will of God. The will of God is not some great mystery that we have to go searching for, learn some kind of way of discerning. The will of God is communicated to us clearly in Scripture. And here we see if you put both Chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality as an example of sanctification. And 5.18, this is the will of God for you that you give thanks in all circumstances. When you put both together, you see that we're called to respond with gratitude that we've been set apart to God, that this is a good thing and good for us, though it means we're not able to indulge what we may want We may want sexual immorality, but we're not free to indulge in it, nor are we able to curse our fate, give thanks in all circumstances. We're we're not at the mercy of fate or uh, glands, (laughs) okay? Uh, That's good to hear. We belong to God because he wants us to. 
And so we give ourselves to God continually. We put into practice things that desire or that, that form our desires for him. And that's these exhortations. And these exhortations, they're easy to take for granted. It's easy to assume that we all want this already as Christians. But actually, these verses, they defy compartmentalizing God to a section of our life. We're good at doing that. And and in some ways, compartmentalization uh, is... um, is useful and even necessary as, as there are times, uh, maybe you're having a, a bad time at home, but work still has to be done. Or you're failing a class at, at school, but you nevertheless have to now buckle down. You want to come home and relax from school, but you need to, you need to study. Uh, compartmentalization can be useful, but note, we don't have, uh, you don't fit these things into your otherwise busy life. When I want to, I'll rejoice, or when I find time, I'll pray, or uh, this, is, uh, th- this is comprehensive. Notice that the comprehensiveness baked into these exhortations, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, which is another way of saying pray always, give thanks always in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're just looking at these three verses, and usually when we look at verses like this, we go right to how. You know, here's how to, all right? Here's how to rejoice. Here's how to pray. Here's how to give thanks. And there is a how to to this, and it's fine to talk about how, but maybe we should also spend a little time considering why. Why should we rejoice always? Why should we pray without ceasing? Why should we give thanks in all circumstances? Well, because this is the Word of God, and we just do what the Bible says. And yes, That's true. Uh, This is the will of God. This is what the Bible says, full stop. But there are reasons why the Bible says this to us. There are reasons why God uh, draws this from us and works in us uh, for this. Reasons that hold up to scrutiny. I'll give you a couple. Just as we get going here, and then we're not going to do two-part message today. We're going to do a three-part message. We'll just take each verse and, uh, and, and get some takeaways from each one. But as to reasons why the Bible tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, this is the will of God for you, our passage. Uh, one reason is that rejoicing and praying and giving thanks are each and all dependent actions. You see that. They're not independent actions we generate on our own. They're dependent actions, meaning... They're each effects dependent upon a first cause. And so dependent actions, the beauty of a dependent action is that it keeps first cause before us. There's a first cause for why we rejoice always, why we pray without ceasing, why we give thanks in all circumstances. And that first cause is our salvation. There's no other reason to do this. I had a fraternity brother in college who had a girlfriend, I don't know if he married her or not, uh, lost touch with them, but uh, this was a girl who was uh, very much, uh, uh, she wasn't just a non-Christian, she was quite vocal about her opposition to Christianity. And yet, uh, because I hung out with her boyfriend, uh, we would sometimes, she would sometimes join us in the cafeteria for, for lunch or something. And, and I remember her making fun of one of her sorority sisters who was also in our campus ministry for saying, I rejoiced about something. 
She goes, who talks like that? <laughs> now, I didn't know back at the time uh, how to give a gentle answer to that, but uh, uh, the simple answer to that is, well, Christians talk like that, and there's a reason why we talk like that. It's the reason why we use this word rejoice. Dependent actions keep us keep first causes before us. And so when you look at rejoicing, praying, giving thanks as dependent actions, which they are, what they're dependent on is our salvation. God has made us his own in Jesus. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God through Jesus. His resurrection is real. His return is sure. God will complete the work he started in us and for us. If all this is true, and it is, then we always have a first cause that sparks joy, that conditions praying because I'm welcome in God's presence, that uh, spurs making thanks to God. Another uh, reason why we're given this instruction along the same lines, these are each and all actions which if they don't change circumstances, and they may not, they at least challenge the circumstances we find ourselves in. And they challenge those circumstances, they change those circumstances with Christ-centeredness. When our circumstances are nothing we want, nothing we would have sought for ourselves, practicing this truth, this uh, coming out of us, not even having to give ourselves to it, it just, it just comes uh, from us by way of a walk with Christ that's being nurtured and developed. Uh, these, um, these actions can be life-altering when they come from us. We really note there's a, there's a real difference in the way uh, I'm handling this than the way I would have handled it if I didn't know the Lord, if I didn't have some kind of transcendent reality over my life. We can find ourselves at times in very challenging circumstances. We can. Christians are not immune from all of the horrible things that can befall people. But we can also challenge the circumstances by giving ourselves to these actions. But the biggest why for rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, think about how, but we're thinking about why just here to wade into this. The biggest why is this is how we become Christian. You know, we say, uh, I became a Christian, and we look back to a point of conversion. Maybe it was in high school, maybe it was when you were a child, maybe it was when you were an adult. There are different stories in the room. But we point back to a moment of conversion when I trusted Christ's provision for me. His cross and resurrection became mine. I became a Christian then. I entered into new life. I went from darkness into light. Uh, the kingdom of self to the kingdom of Christ, however you want to talk about or put formalizing our belief. Maybe you prayed a, a prayer someone led you in. Maybe you uh, invited Christ into your heart, use that language, but you received God's forgiveness. Uh, that's when we became a Christian. It's nothing we earn. It's a free gift of, of God's uh, grace uh, that we access by faith in what he's done, meaning uh, nothing we contribute. But I want to take this text with you from the angle of becoming Christian. We talk about when we became a Christian. And this place in Scripture gives us the opportunity to talk about becoming Christian, meaning how we live in 
to what we already are. We have here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, 16 through 18, what we have here is who Christians become. We become people, and for some people this is pretty immediate. Uh, the, the change and transformation is like, wow, I, you were one way yesterday and now you're this way today. But for most of us, particularly those of us who've grown up in, in, in the church, for most of us, there's a, there's a growth process in this, growth process for everybody. But for a lot of us, it's becoming, it's learning how to rejoice in what God has done for us. That is still true on my worst day. It's still true on my very worst day that God has accomplished for me in Christ what I could not accomplish and would not have accomplished for myself. People who pray continually, we become people who pray continually, not as a heaping up phrases to God. Jesus taught us, you don't have to come to God with great eloquence or a bunch of words. He knows your needs. You just need to come to him. He has your life and we access his grace and his help and, uh, for ourselves and for others. And, and we're people who pray continually. Why? Because nothing separates us anymore from God. He's always there and there for us. We know this as we become Christian. And then we're people who give thanks in all circumstances because we come to know God is always doing more than we know. I may want out of the circumstances, few circumstances I would like out of today. And yet I know that God is always working it's not, it's not a hope so kind of orientation. If God is the God who I read throughout the scriptures is always doing more than his people knew at the time, then that's true also in my life and in yours. In a walk with Christ, let me put it this way. In a walk with Christ, we never finish becoming what we became at the point we met him. So there's a, a, a line of demarcation. Now, you may be like me in my own life. I can't point to a date. And this got me all confused uh, as a teenager because I was in a, a heavy revivalist kind of uh, uh, church setting. And so there was this emphasis on you better know that you know. And, and a lot of people had a date in their Bible. And I didn't have that. It took me a long time to realize I'd, I'd never known a time in my life when I hadn't loved Jesus. And so he got me early. And then I also realized the good in him getting me early is if he hadn't got me early, I would have done a lot of damage. <laughs> I would have been a very self-centered individual and would have hurt a lot of people. Uh, I'm not saying I was going to be an ax murderer or something. I just, you know, I just lived pretty selfishly. And I would have been uh, somebody who brought pain into others' lives. God, God got me early to keep me from where I naturally would have gone in my case. So I thank him for that. I thank him for preserving grace. But I used to think I had to have this testimony of I had this derelict life, you know, because that's all was, was put before me. And so uh, if you're like me, maybe you, you can't point to a, a time when you first believed. You've been believing since your first conscious thought. But there is a, a point at which we, we formalize our faith. There's a, there's a point at which we... We recognize I, I, I'm in Christ. I am a Christian. You identify uh, uh, with him and with the body of Christ. 
And from that point, whenever that is, you then spend the rest of your days becoming Christian. Learning why these behaviors work as they do, why these behaviors are unique to people in Christ, and uh, putting them into practice. If you can think about this, at least it's helpful to me to think about this, like a dental practice or like a medical practice or like a law practice maybe. Uh, you became a lawyer when you passed the bar and got hired by a law firm or, or started a law firm. But you also look over the course of your career and you see becoming, don't you? I mean, you, you see cases in which you went deeper into the practice of law. Same for ministry career, just to speak uh, for myself. I, I became a pastor the day a church hired me for the job, but I've also experienced pastoral becoming. Not enough, I, I recognize that. But becoming over time through varied experiences that really test whether uh, this is uh, really your vocation or not. Became a Christian the day we got Jesus' righteousness for our unrighteousness. Whether you can put a date with that or not is really irrelevant. We got his righteousness for our unrighteousness and we recognized it. We got his righteousness for our self-righteousness and we recognized it. We, we got his flawlessness for our flawedness. There was an exchange. We became Christian. But we also become Christian by doing Christianly. And it actually doesn't get more Christian than doing these well-known lines in our text. And, and this is why this is repeated instruction throughout the New Testament. Let's take each one. Three takeaways today instead of two, because we've got three verses, pretty simple uh, to outline this particular message. But we'll, we'll just look at rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and then giving thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, first, verse 16. As I've said, common New Testament instruction. And why is that? Because of everything God has done for us in Christ. Why do we rejoice? Because there's no longer any condemnation hanging over us. That's what it's connected to. It's what it's tied to. Because he will finish the work he started. That's what we rejoice in. The accomplishments of God for us in Christ. Because of God in Christ for us, joy is available to us. Anybody can be happy. It's often differentiated, some people make too much of it, but anybody can be happy in life. And yet Christians can be joyful. And the reason we can be joyful, not that non-Christians can't be. I mean, joy is an emotion. There is an experience to it that's similar to happiness on that same spectrum. There's shades and degrees of difference. But for Christians, Joyfulness is connected to fullness, the fullness of God in Christ. That never goes away. That's always good news. On our worst day, uh, God dwells in Jesus. And so while happiness is public domain, it's open to anyone. If you're going to know real joy, authentic, genuine article joy, Jesus holds that copyright. 
You have to get into that through him. I love uh, Psalm 16 that says that the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Because one of the things that tells me is I can't give God a bad day. I hope that's good news for somebody in here. I can't do anything to make God's joy in his own presence lessen. That's an incredible thing to recognize. Some of us walk around hang dog like, I know I'm really disappointed in the Lord. Sorry, that was too much exhaling for COVID time. And we just get this sense that, you know, and, and all that's missing in that is this, <laughs> the self-revelation of God. In his presence are pleasures forevermore. He never has a bad day. Yes, he feels. We can look in places in Scripture. God was sorry that he did this and felt pain over that. God, God feels, feels the suffering of his people. But there's an experience of joy that never leaves God's presence and God's person. It's beautiful. In fact, the thing that we look forward to as people who are redeemed, we know that we've only got, what, 70, 80, 90 years of this life? If we live to a ripe old age, we know our death day is coming unless the Lord's return precedes that. But what's on the other side of that, either the return or our own dying, is joy. Joy alive in the presence of God. I mean, you've never known happiness like you'll know in the presence of Jesus. We love happiness. We love joyful occasions. We love times when it's just like, oh, I just wish this wouldn't end. And the, the, the portrait of heaven we're given in Scripture is that that's not heaven just because that's heaven. That's heaven because Jesus is there in person and he's visible to his people and he's accessible to every one of us. Marvelous stuff. So, joyfulness is inseparable for fullness if you're going to know joy you know jesus that is if you're going to know the pure extract of it okay you say but i've had a really down week what i do with that god has still accomplished for me in christ so you're going to say uh, well i've got depression that means i i'm not a very joyful person no, it just means you have to fight for joy i take it from a sufferer you have to fight for joy Wish it wasn't that way, but it is. Why do I fight for joy? God has still accomplished for me in Christ. What about, you know, 2020 is the calendar from hell. God has still accomplished for me in Christ. What about this uh, disease my loved one is suffering from? It's been too much. Why hasn't God healed her? Why did he let her have it? God has still accomplished for me in Christ. Coming back to that as an anchor, it doesn't mean that you deny hard realities. We don't deny hard realities. We don't act like everything's okay. That's why the, the church ought to be the, the one kind of fellowship when you say, man, how you doing? And you go, you know, I'm not doing so well. We don't all stand back and go, oh, really? Oh, well, I don't know what to do with that. You know? What do we do with that? We, we talk about Christ. We talk about what we have in him that can never be taken away. And not as a pick-me-up, not as a little lift, a little boost. But as the, the anchor of our soul, the firmness that's available to us anytime we dwell on it, the action of joy is not dependent upon circumstances being just right, just so. If that's the case, if joy is dependent upon 
circumstances being just right and just so, I, I will, it's unrealistic to ask me to, to, to be joyful always. Totally unrealistic. That's what my fraternity brother's girlfriend was thinking about it. But if what God has accomplished for me in Christ transcends every condition of life and is always with me, then no matter how down or how crazy things get, I submit myself to a reality. A reality that is presently unseen, yes. At the moment, we don't see everything subject to him, but we believe everything is and everything will be on a glorious day when he'll crack the sky and show everyone who he is. We submit ourselves to that reality that God has accomplished, what God has accomplished for me in Christ is truly my everything. Let me give you a, let me give you a picture of it. Think of, uh, if you're musically inclined, which I'm not, I love music, but uh, I'm not musically inclined. But you can think of rejoicing like a tuning fork. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I've, I, re- I remembered that I'd shared this with you and I went back and looked, it was about Christmas five years ago. Christmas Eve service or lessons and carols, something like that. But I, I shared with you a story, it comes from a novelist named Lloyd Douglas, who remembers back to when he was a college student. Lloyd Douglas uh, was living in a boarding house. Boarding houses have sort of gone away. Uh, it's a little bit dated, but uh, there were rooms uh, in this big, large house in this college town, and, and he rented one of the rooms, and that was a boarding house. And uh, Below him on the first floor was a, re- was a retired music teacher who was now infirmed. He was confined to his room. He sat in a wheelchair all day. And uh, Lloyd Douglas and this man had uh, uh, formed a relationship over common meals. And, and they had a daily ritual, which was looked forward to every morning. Douglas would come bounding down the stairs, college student, heading out to his day. He would stick his head in the old man's room. And he would say, well, what's the good news? And the older man always gave the same answer. Tuning fork in hand, he tapped it on the side of his wheelchair and said, the good news is that is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that, my friend, is middle C every day. That's what our joy in Christ is like. Our, 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 it's a great constant. Whatever flatness or out of tuneness there might be around us or in us, certain realities are resiliently, defiantly unchanging. And it's not the fortunes of your favorite SEC team. Certain realities are defiantly, resiliently unchanging. And that reality is everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. The work of God continuing. To rejoice always is not hyping yourself up into an emotional state where you can no longer be bothered by any kind of downer. Again, sometimes we fight for joy. But joy doesn't work like that. It works more like that tuning fork. It, it's, it's, it's predicated, it's conditioned, it's dependent upon an announcement that God is over all this mess and the God who's over all this mess is good and he's good to me. Even, even if I can't point to anything else good going on right now, I have good in Jesus. Second one, 
and the time spent on each one gets progressively less as we go. Verse 17, pray without ceasing or pray continually as it may be in your translation. It stands to logic. And think about it just logically first. If I actually believe God is involved in every aspect of life, that is, I have not compartmentalized my spiritual life over here where God is involved, maybe, and the rest of my life over here where I either keep God out of it or just don't think he cares. If I actually believe that God has something to do with everything of life, how can I not pray? I mean, it just, it will happen. If I really can't compartmentalize God to the spiritual things anyway, he he won't stay there. How can I not pray continually? Now, we always want to know how. How do you do this? And and you'll, you'll find all kinds of good resources out there, brothers and sisters who've written on this, taught on this, how to's. I'll give you one that I have found that works for me is to stay in the Psalms. Keep Psalms in mind. Learn the Psalms. They're lines. That's the beauty of them. You can just take a line and you can know that line. You can repeat that line because the Psalms are prayers. They're sung prayers. I'm in the Psalms right now as it happens in my Bible reading. If you follow the McShane calendar, you've been in the Psalms as well. One of the books the calendar has you in. And maybe it was a week ago now, earlier uh, a week ago, or two now, I was in 109. Psalm 109 reads this way. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. That's the first four verses. Now what's beautiful about that is when I looked closer at it, he's actually saying, I am prayer. So where it reads, uh, in return for my love, verse 4 of Psalm 109, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. He's literally saying, in return for, for, for my love, they accuse me, but I'm prayer. They are lies, they are deceit, they are accusation, but I am prayer. And that in Psalm 109 gave me a, a, a nice angle on, on this and in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, I am prayer. Psalmist says that. Prayer is something we do. Prayer is something we speak. But it's also something we inhabit inside our own skin. And I don't, I don't mean that mystically. I mean it actually concretely. Because what happens when you pray is you are giving yourself to God. Everything you know about yourself to everything you know about him. It may not all be comprehensively reviewed in the moment. But that's what you're doing. And we're doing that because he's given himself to us. Part of becoming Christian is becoming prayer. And this pervades everything. I know a number of you will vote soon in local, state, national elections if you haven't already. In the online reading that I do each week, uh, I found this little uh, prayer, a voting place prayer. It was composed by a pastor in Minnesota who was voting this last week. And its content, he takes the Lord's Prayer. It's particularly relevant to the cultural atmosphere we're doing democracy in now. This is his polling place prayer. He came back and wrote it down. 
Our Father in heaven, you are on your heavenly throne, sovereign over all nations at all times. In this moment of national frustration and angst, you are still sovereign over history and over this nation. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, we need your kingdom to break in like never before. Our earthly kings and kingdoms are continually botching things up. Somehow, some way, let your will be done through these candidates and offices we're voting for. As imperfect as these candidates are, guide their efforts in ways that advance the cause of justice. Forgive us for putting so much faith in this early, earthly kingdom and neglecting to advance and promote your kingdom with equal vigor and passion. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we're voting today on taxes, the wise distribution of wealth, the poor and the rich, health care, and minimum wage laws. In one powerful word, you remind us that Christians are to vote in ways that give us our daily bread, not give me my daily provisions. Help us to vote in ways that keep the common good in mind, others' needs above my own, to remember that I'm my brother's keeper. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, including politically. Lord, we confess all the ways we've let politics divide us and lament all the destruction of relationships over political disagreements. Forgive us for putting more energy into winning arguments than loving our neighbors and our enemies, even our political enemies. Help us to extend grace to those who have offended us with their different views and attacked us with unfair criticism. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, the devil, your enemy, is having a heyday watching us tear each other apart. The lies and spin and slander and division and anger are delightful in his eyes. Lord, help your people, your church, become wiser to his tactics and not be unaware of his schemes and not get pulled into the fray. Keep your church pure and uncompromised as we represent your radically different society and way of being human. Deliver us from political mudslinging and nationalistic idolatry. For after the polls are closed and all the ballots are counted, and after all the victory celebrations and concession speeches are finished, this all-important truth will remain. Your kingdom, your power, your glory ultimately belongs solely to you forever and ever. Amen. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean you have to pray eloquently like that. The point is there's no place the Christian cannot pray. And I share his polling place praying as a segue into our third and final verse this morning, verse 18, because in the prayer I just read, the author of it made mention of things that test our gratitude, if not our fortitude. Giving thanks, as it's rendered in some translations, or just give, but it's the, it's the sense of present ongoing action, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you circumstances. It felt heavier this year for us all, and the kind of circumstances we're enduring together can breed cynicism. One of the things I have to fight for is joy. One of the things I have to fight against is cynicism. Cynicism is um, unresolved discouragement, unresolved disappointment. And there's been a lot of cynicism this year. Um, There is a lot certainly toward leaders, government leaders, health leaders, church leaders. I've certainly encountered it more so in this time than any other time in my career. Cynicism toward one another. But I mentioned cynicism because it really is the killer of gratitude. The reason I fight against cynicism personally is because I don't want it to take me over. If it takes me over, I'm not a grateful person. 
Or, you know, cynicism comes from feeling you've endured too much. I can go there easily with things I've been through in life. The practice of gratitude, even if you're just thanking God for your breath, I mean, just start there. I'm breathing today, Lord, thank you. Or, or some happy memory. Uh, Tim McGraw's music, that's a good one to start with too. Go there. Uh, man, that guy pulls me out of depression often. I mean, what an instrument of common grace. He doesn't know it, but if I get to meet him someday. I actually did meet him one day. Uh, he was very friendly in a restaurant. We were sharing a waiting room together, but I didn't have the heart to say, you're Tim McGraw. <laughs> I just acted like, hey, you're just some guy. It's amazing what God can use, but even if it's just thanking God for the people you love and the people who love you, even if it's just that, the practice of gratitude keeps the dragon of cynicism from burning you to a crisp. See, God never promised us carefree circumstances. We know that. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, why did I even put that in my notes? You know that. And that doesn't mean he's uncaring for us. If I believe in the cross, I know he's not uncaring. If I believe in the cross, I know he's not uncaring. I don't always know why he allows certain things to come into our lives. I mostly don't know why the more painful circumstances of life are allowed to his people, except that in such circumstances, you know, we always say, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. Actually, I won't, because when I get to heaven, I'll be glorified. And the scripture says, I'll, I'll already know even as I'm fully known, I'll be able to see immediately in the, in the light of Jesus Christ's face what everything meant. I don't have to ask questions. I mean, sometimes we get that, well, I'm going to ask him about that when I get to heaven. Yeah, you're going to sit and, and inquisition the king. Good luck with that. Yeah. No, you won't. You, you, won't, you won't have any more questions for him. Questions are what we ask in a fallen world. In a restored, redeemed, renewed creation, there's no more questions. I guess that disappoints the philosophers, but there'll be enough there for them to ponder. I don't know why painful things come into our lives, hurtful circumstances, except I do know this. In such circumstances, in the harder things of life, there is an experience of him as a suffering God, which means he can relate to me in my sufferings puts everything I believe into a finer perspective. And, and I do get a sense of the strength of knowing him. He's no longer a concept out there. He's the real God that I spend time with. And now we come full circle. Here's my last word. The writer Ann Voskamp has observed, it's not joy that leads to gratitude, it's gratitude that leads to joy. So as you practice these things, they tend to get in a rhythm with themselves. We center our life, we build it around and on what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. And when I'm doing that, when Jesus really becomes my everything, the core, then the rejoicing and the praying and the thanksgiving, they aren't things I have to make myself do. It won't work that well if you have to make yourself. We can make ourselves do these things to a point, but God's will is as much done in and for us as it's something we, we do ourselves. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's God's will for you in Christ. Stand with me. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your love for us in Jesus. Thank you for giving us this truth. It's simple to read. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. But Lord, there's a lifetime of becoming in each one of these. And I pray that you will encourage us, that you're for us, and that we will become what you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen.